What is the perfect movie? We've been asking this question for four and a half years without getting closer to the answer. Until now. We have developed the scientific formula for the perfect movie and we're running our favorites through the gauntlet to see what holds up. Will your perfect movie pass? Find out on this special episode. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. I feel like we haven't done this in a year. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been like three weeks. It has been, hasn't it? Yeah. It has been a long time. Midnight Myth listeners, thank you for bearing with us. We have been extraordinarily busy For one, we have our son, Arthur, who's now almost six months. He's taking up a lot of our free time, which is fantastic. Two, I'm in the process of preparing to launch my own business. So I have a business that will be launching this fall in the great state of Pennsylvania. That's been taking up a ton of our time, plus all the usual life stuff. It's summer in the city. 2021. We're vaccinated. We're feeling good. And we're back with another Midnight Myth episode. Yeah. Not to mention, we also both have day jobs on top of all of that. So all that is to say, thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for continuing to listen and support. We love you. And we decided to come at you with something a little bit lighter and easier than our Apocalypse Now episode that we did last week, which left us with some heavy boots. So uh, yeah, we're going to have some fun this week. What we're doing this week, if you recall, back in quarantine 2020, it was, I think, early summer. Laurel and I were going stir crazy. We couldn't just sit there and binge another episode of that Tiger show on Netflix, whatever it was called. I forget. Tiger King. Tiger King, yeah. We couldn't just watch another episode of Tiger King or reruns of The Office. We were going crazy. And we came up with a system. It is the perfect movie system. Now, we've done episodes around this before. I'm going to kind of rehash how this works. Laurel and I were sitting there in quarantine, and I think we were watching something on YouTube or listening to a podcast, and we heard this constant refrain from people that are talking about movies in particular in a serious way. Use this phrase, it's not a perfect movie, but all the time. It's not a perfect movie, but I really like the acting. It's not a perfect movie, but I think there's something of value there. It's not a perfect movie, but we heard this over and over again. And in our quarantine boredom, we started asking the question, what does that phrase, it's not a perfect movie, but even mean? And generally it goes like this. Someone is saying, I'm going to analyze a piece of artwork and I'm going to excuse its flaws. It actually doesn't mean anything a perfect movie or not a perfect movie. It's saying 
I'm going to talk about, for example, Age of Ultron, but I'm going to ignore the fact that Thor has this weird side quest to set up Ragnarok that doesn't really fit into the movie at all. It's saying, it's not a perfect movie, such as Thor's side quest, but I want to talk about the good things that James Spader does as Ultron, for example. And we kind of thought it was a cop-out, because if you're going to start by defining a thing against what it's not, and you have not defined the thing, you are engaging in a bad faith logical argument. You are trying to make a philosophical argument that something is not a thing before you define the thing. So we set out to define the thing, to define the perfect movie. And it was a weekend and we debated and debated and we came up with what some are calling the most super scientific, flawless way to determine what a perfect movie is. It is the Midnight Myth Perfect Movie Gauntlet. First of all, it has almost become our own kind of drinking game every time we hear or accidentally say anything like, it's not a perfect movie, but because I've said that a thousand times, uh, as a society is a big one too, and then the film has pacing issues. These are all things that when we hear them or say them, we just have to take a swig of whatever we're drinking. So if you catch yourself saying them too, I challenge you to also take a drink. Uh, but thank you for that intro. As you said, this is something that we developed and had a lot of fun putting together how we define the perfect movie. Obviously, film and art are subjective, but we wanted to introduce some element of objectivity that would allow us to analyze our films and TV shows from a different perspective. So what this really is, and what this has been through every episode that we've done, uh, running movies through the perfect movie gauntlet, is testing our theory. So if we take something that we think could be a perfect movie and we run it through the gauntlet and it fails on all of the rubrics, then maybe our system isn't perfect and vice versa. So we are continuing to test our theories, test our scientific method through this rigorous study. And we have a slate of films that we're going to run through it today and see if we can get a little bit closer to honing those criteria. We say that there's really nothing scientific about this at oh all. Oh my God. It's yeah. completely subjective. You could certainly question our methodology, but heck, we have fun doing it. So we're going to do it. Before we uh, roll up our sleeves and begin work, I want to give a huge, huge, huge thank you to Andy, the host of the Dream Swarm podcast. Andy was kind enough to invite us on. Sadly, Laurel couldn't make it because the baby was being a bit of a handful, but I got to guest and he interviewed me and we talked about art and the role of history and myth in making movies and how do we judge the context of the movie and the artist who makes them. And it was, it was just an honor to be asked to be on that podcast. So if you're listening to The Midnight Myth, chances are you like geeky, you like supernatural, you like getting really deep and dirty and digging into art. And Dream Swarm is a great podcast that is right along with the Midnight Myth mission. Yeah, and it's a wonderful interview. So thank you again to Andy for having uh, for having Derek on. I thought it was a real treat to get to listen to that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was really nervous. That's natural. It's a nerve-wracking thing to do. To guest on someone else. Like, we've on I've only guested, this I think was my third time doing a guest spot. And each time I've done it, I've been like, 
near shaking so nervous. Well, yeah, you're getting in front of somebody else's audience and you're trying to represent the midnight myth and you're also trying to not let down these other podcasters who you really admire. So we're always grateful to be asked on. We're always grateful to have other podcasters on with us. It's amazing to be able to share in this incredible community. And we're just happy that we have been able to help each other find new people to listen. One of the best joys of being a podcaster has been able to meet other independent podcasters who do similar things like us and just to listen to their shows and support them has been so cool. And the support they show us is so cool. It's just a great online community. We think of especially Twitter as being like one of the most cruel, mean and worthless digital spaces. And that is by and large, pretty accurate except for podcasters trying to support each other. Yeah. It's basically just a big online group hug all the time. Yeah. It's really cool. Anyway, shall we start the gauntlet? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let us revise and revisit how this works structurally. There are six different criteria that the movie must pass. They are all of equal importance. They're numbered one through six somewhat arbitrarily, but if it doesn't pass one of them, it is not a perfect movie. So it must hit all six of these different points. What are those points? Those are, first and foremost, point number one, it must be a whole and unified and a contained and complete narrative. What that means is you can't do, for example, Empire Strikes Back, because that's part of a trilogy, and we figured those need to be rated differently. Sorry, MCU fans, it pretty much counts all of the MCU out, because for it to be a perfect movie, it can't be dependent on other movies. It must be accessible, meaning that people should be able to sit down and watch it and be able to enjoy it on its own merits, meaning you don't need a film degree in order to enjoy it. You don't need a history degree to understand it. It has to be timeless, and we've rated this as at least 10 years old, and it still has to hold up after those 10 years. For example, a lot of people thought Titanic was the perfect movie because it was a huge pop culture phenomenon. Looking back, most people are like, yeah, that movie wasn't very good. It is not a timeless movie. It must be zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. The movie has to create something within our culture. It has to form a zeitgeist. A good example of this off the top of my head is the movie Avatar, creating a zeitgeist around the planet Pandora. It must be technically outstanding. Now, granted, every movie is going to be as technically good as the time that it's in, because technology does evolve, but it must be technically outstanding, which means no Michael Bay recycling the same shot in every Transformers movie. And lastly, but not least, it must have resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny. When we start to pick the movie apart and ask what it says, it must say something. We don't have to agree with what it says, but it must be there. It must have resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny. A good example of a movie that does it, the Ghostbuster remake, which is a fine, fun movie that stars the all-female cast. But when you ask, what's this movie about? It's not really about anything. It does not hold up under scrutiny. Not to pick on any of those movies or praise any of those movies. They're literally just the ones popping in my head. 
Any questions or concerns there, my dear wife? I don't think so. I'm ready to do this. All right. So, and this is going to be a discussion. Obviously, we want to know what you think. If we're making a really good argument or a bad argument, or you want to add a layer to it, actually, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. So my thing is we would love to hear from you, especially on whether you think we got things absolutely right or absolutely wrong, or you have other movies you want us to run through the gauntlet. Uh, The best thing you can do to reach out to us is visit us on Twitter. We're at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. There is a Patreon link and a merch store there if you wanted to support us. But the very, very, very best thing you can do for the podcast, other than just listening, is leaving us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So if you enjoy what you hear and you want other people to find us, please consider leaving us five stars and a couple of words about why you like the podcast. It really makes a huge, huge difference. Man, lots of intro on this one. What's the first movie? Yeah, so I know I said we were going to get a little less heavy than our Apocalypse Now episode, but I thought, why don't we kick this off with Apocalypse Now? Why don't we run it through the gauntlet? What do you think? Go big or go home. And what's interesting about this one is all of the movies that we've sourced for this, I think, have a really good chance of making it through the rubric, but I think we should definitely put them to the test. So we're starting with what's considered one of the best movies of all time. Yep. So let us begin. So first point, whole and unified, a contained and complete narrative. You could argue that it's an adaptation of A Heart of Darkness, and that may make it a little less of a whole and unified or complete contained narrative. What do you think? You could argue that, but then you could say that anything that's an adaptation of anything is not a whole and unified uh, story, and I don't think that's the case for Apocalypse Now, which diverges, en- diverges enough from the source material and requires no prior knowledge of the source material in order to access the story. So I don't think that it uh, fails that metric by any means. Yeah, I think that's the key there. It, yeah. You don't have to read Heart of Darkness to get Apocalypse Now. I've never read it, and I still enjoy that movie, so check mark there. It passes that. Next, Accessible. This is where we could run into a little bit of trouble. I think there is a reason that this is considered one of the greatest movies of all time, and that's because people can watch it and appreciate it, whether they have a background in film, a background in American history, a background in war and politics or not. Anyone can kind of appreciate that this movie is brilliant. It's not necessarily fun to sit down and watch, but it is easy to appreciate from a technical level, from an artistic level, and from an entertainment level. What do you think? Of all the ones on here, this is the one that it's easy to argue against Apocalypse Now passing. Um, I'll point out some examples of why I think this may not be very accessible. There are plenty of people who are going to watch American soldiers shoot a young woman trying to protect a puppy, and that's it the movie's over for them. They're not going to be able to continue to go on the journey. There's plenty of people that are going to get to the Colonel with heads on pikes and be like, I don't know what happened to this movie. I can't handle it. There are plenty of people I would imagine not close or connected to the Vietnam war, for example. And I have no idea if this is true. Gen Zers. I could see this movie being very inaccessible It has pop culture touchstones like The Doors playing that you have to have some semblance of connection to. 
that I don't necessarily think add to the accessibility. The movie was so inaccessible when it first shot that they had to add in um, Martin Sheen doing voiceover. Otherwise, the movie didn't make any sense to viewers. I, I would say that despite its popularity and its and its standing as a great artwork piece of cinema, it is, at the very least, I think we have to seriously scrutinize whether this is an accessible movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think that's the stickiest of the the metrics on this one. But it also is the metric that I have the hardest time with most of the time when we run things through the gauntlet because for me, accessibility just means no major barriers of entry. It doesn't mean that every single person has to be able to sit down and watch it or be able to stomach the content. It doesn't mean that it has to be lowest common denominator entertainment. It just means that there have to be no major barriers of entry. I, I totally disagree with that. Um, and, and, and it's the word of major barrier of entry. If it doesn't have a major barrier of entry, what am I trying to say here? Let me formulate my thoughts here. If the thing is, it has to be so inaccessible that it's a no-brainer is essentially what you're saying. It has to be, for example, like... Eraserhead. Waking Life. Yeah. Wait, that's what it's called, right? Waking Waking Life, yeah. Waking Life. The movie that's a moving cartoon, you know, it has to be that inaccessible to fail it. That's the most extreme example. The question is, is it perfect? And if it's perfect, it must be able to appeal to both intellect and lowest common denominator. That's what accessible means to me. We Otherwise, we could throw out accessible and throw out resonant themes because it is, it's easier to me to make something appealing to the high intellect but unappealing to the masses versus... Um, appealing to the masses, but not appealing to the intellect at all. It's really, really hard to do both. And when you do both, you are one step closer to perfect. What I think you're saying is, yeah, okay. You're saying this is just one quick little check mark. And I'm like, hey, if it's perfect, it's got to be really accessible. And I don't know if this movie is really accessible. Okay. Uh, Do you want to pass it or not through this one? I'm going to let you decide. You're giving me all the power here? Yeah, because I think I've made my piece. For me, the argument that you've made is that there are A, cultural references that might not resonate perfectly for in the next generation, and that B, there is thematic and gruesome content that might uh, squick out viewers, which I think is valid. I don't necessarily think it is a major barrier to being a perfect movie, but I think is definitely valid. The other thing is about accessibility is you do kind of need to have a semblance of literature and some language in ritual to understand the final act. The final act of that movie is very inaccessible. You kind of have to be able to piece together. What are the books that Kurtz is reading? Why would he be reading those? You have to decipher his cryptic poetry to try to understand what, Kurtz's message about war really is. And I would imagine that ending is so ambiguous that it it is a little inaccessible. I have to fail it. If it's up to me, I I have to fail it on accessibility. I think we're deadlocked here, but if one of us fails it, I don't think it can go on. So uh, here we are. 
Apocalypse Now is not a perfect movie. Oh, wow. Okay, Twitter, come for us. We're ready. Uh, shall we move on to the next one? Absolutely. Or do, right. you, do you want to run Apocalypse Now through the other ones? I don't think so, because okay. we just did a major full episode on it, so people know that we think it has resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny, that it's timeless, etc. It's technically uh, outstanding. It's technically outstanding. It, it has a huge zeitgeist. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not worried about spending too much time on that since we just did that episode. Definitely check out our previous episode, The Horror, The Horror. Um, but now <laughs> we're finally going to move on to something lighter and more fun. And our next movie that we're going to run through is The Muppet Christmas Carol. How do you feel about that, Derek? Total polar opposite from Apocalypse Now. Absolute opposite movie. And I will tell you, I think this has a good chance of going through because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. But regardless of whether we think it is a perfect movie, you cannot debate that it does have the single most perfect piece of casting ever on screen with Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge. Because come on, like he's playing against Kermit the Frog with total genuine sincerity, playing it completely straight and the absolute picture of Dickensian, uh, you know, vice. It's incredible. So let's let's run it through and let's see what we find. And this is one of the ones I wanted to do the yeah. most. All right, so first one, is it a whole and unified, a contained and complete narrative? I would argue that's a pretty easy yes to me. Yeah, absolutely. If this was your only entryway to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, you would still get the absolute full picture of the novel. You get all of the important episodes, and Gonzo even tells you about the novel and about Charles Dickens. So I don't think I'm worried about it as an adaptation, and it is absolutely a whole and unified narrative. Uh, the one question I would have is, like, do you need to know the Muppets to to do this, to get through this? Is is this part of a greater Muppet hmm. cycle? Um, or if this was your only intro to the Muppets, would this work as a whole and unified narrative? I still think it does, but just a question. That is a really good question. And one I hadn't considered. between one and two here. So let's use something they do in philosophy, in particular philosophy of science. It's called possible world analysis. And it's a thought experiment where you say, is there a possible world blank? For example, you would say, is evolution a universal biological law? And anywhere there's biological life, would there be evolution? And if you're a philosopher of science, you would say, is there a possible world where there's biological life and there's no evolution? And if that's the case, then you would say, no, biology is not a Law, if you can't argue. So it's a just a way to argue, is there a possible reality where this is true? What does that look like? So is there a possible world in which the first and only Muppet movie is a Muppet Christmas Carol? I mean, yeah, probably. I think so. Yeah, I think if you, I think somebody there have been enough adaptations of a Christmas Carol that somebody would be like, let's do it with weird, crazy puppets. You would need like a visionary puppeteer like Jim Henson to exist. Yeah, Jim Henson is a fantastic genius, and it would be a, another possible world with another Jim Henson. And instead of doing a variety show, Jim Henson does a Christmas Carol with his invention Muppets. I think. That could work. And the first introduction people would have to the world of the Muppets being the Muppet Christmas Carol, 
there might be some, there might be more adults that would be like, what is this? Kids would love it. Of course. People like you and I would love it and be like, puppets, Dickens, this is great. So I think because it passes the possible world analysis test, I think we can say it passes whole and unified. Wonderful. I'm passing it. Boom. I think this one's going to be easy, accessible. Clearly, it's for all ages. It makes the work of Dickens more palatable to people who are young, people who are old, people who hated reading Dickens in high school, people who loved reading Dickens in high school. It is pretty much the most accessible presentation of one of the most ubiquitous stories. Wonderful. It's over 10 years old, right? Yes, it is. Okay, so it's timeless. Here, I think we have a problem. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. Okay, very, very important uh, because this is the this is the piece of the rubric that takes it from good to exceptional. And a perfect movie can't just be airtight; it has to be exceptional. And I, I I think this one does get sticky for us. Is it responding to the zeitgeist of the impulse to adapt a Christmas Carol? Probably. Is this, at least now, widely recognized as one of, if not the best cinematic adaptation of A Christmas Carol? Yes. Uh, I think we can pass it through zeitgeist forming because there is enough of a sort of generational reliance on Muppet Christmas Carol as kind of the defining Christmas Carol of our time that I think it passes. Well, there's another aspect to this too. Yeah. Even if I were willing to accept that argument and there are some shaky parts to it because it saying that it's the best version of an adaptation of a time to me is the definition of zeitgeist responding, not zeitgeist forming. So to me, it's like, because there's a zeitgeist around the Christmas Carol, it's responded by being the best adaptation of it. But two, the Muppets are their own zeitgeist. And this is clearly in response to the zeitgeist that exists of the Muppets saying, we're the Muppets. We do these great stories. We do these great adaptations. Why haven't we done a Christmas one? Let's do the Christmas Carol because the, we're responding to the zeitgeist around the Muppets that already exists. So not only the Dickensian angle, there's the Muppet angle too that I would say that it's also more in a response than a formation. Whew. So are you failing it? Well, you let me decide on the first one. I think it is only fair that I let you decide on this one. Oh my God. Oh, Kermit, help me. So I think you've made a really good point. And as much as I feel a strong bias towards putting this movie through on all counts, I think we have raised enough questions about multiple metrics that I have to fail it. We agreed before we sat down to record listeners that we were going to be very strict in the application of it this time around. Because we have let imperfect movies slip through because they sort of got through our rubric. We have to be very rigorous in the application of these metrics. And while both Apocalypse Now and A Muppet Christmas Carol are really, really close... I mean, they are really close. We're splitting hairs. Yeah. They're not perfect. Okay. 
Moving on. What's next? Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Oh boy, oh boy. So right off the bat, we have some questions about whether this is a whole and unified contained narrative, because obviously multiple movies were spawned from this, and it is an adaptation of a Disney ride. My perspective on this is that if you did not make any sequels to Pirates of the Caribbean, the first movie would still stand and be absolutely whole and contained. I also have never been to Disney World and did not know there was a Pirates of the Caribbean ride until after I saw the movie, so I obviously did not need prior knowledge or experience with the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in order to enjoy the film. So I think it stands up on this metric, even though those questions arise. What do you think? I agree. I think okay. I think you're right about that. I think you hit the nail on the head. If it's its only movie, it would have been a successful movie. If you've never been to Disney World or Disneyland, but you just wanted to see a cool movie about pirates, you could do that. Yeah. So I would say that while the subsequent movies would fail. Easily. This one passes. I So let's move it to the next one, which would be accessible. I would say this is a very accessible movie. Yeah, this is kind of the definition of accessible. Again, like Muppet Christmas Carol, it's pretty much applicable to all ages. It has a little bit of adult content in it, but it was marketed to the masses. It was a huge blockbuster phenomenon, but it's also... Uh, in the vein of adventure movies and kind of a cinematic history. So I absolutely think it's accessible to a very wide audience. It's over 10 years old and it still holds up. I would say that it is definitely timeless. Great. Pass there. This is going to be tough here. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. This is not tough to me at all. This movie single-handedly skyrocketed Johnny Depp from sort of an indie darling to a blockbuster leading man. So it reinvigorated this man's career. It also completely inspired a renaissance of pirates, like pirates became cool again, who had not been cool for generations. And it spawned countless sequels that have made billions of dollars. Like for me, there is no, there's no question about whether this is zeitgeist forming versus zeitgeist responding. What zeitgeist would it be responding to? Because nobody was talking about pirates before this movie came out. In this generation, but subsequently there had been a long tradition of pirate stories and pirate TV and pirate media, pirate um, movies. So is this responding to the pirate media that had come before it, the classic swashbuckling tales that are so synonymous with the pirate that had such a strong zeitgeist around the pirate that Disney created a theme park ride, which was then the basis of the movies. Like there was already a pirate zeitgeist to tap into just because it made it more popular for our generation doesn't mean it formed it. I think that's kind of a flawed way to look at that question because by that token, you would say that nothing could be zeitgeist forming if it existed in the line of an existing genre. So no adventure movie could be perfect if it's not the original adventure movie. No horror movie could be perfect if it's not the original horror movie. I just think that's kind of a flawed line of reasoning. And I would also hold that pirates had fallen so out of fashion, swashbuckling adventure films had fallen so far out of fashion 
that to reinvigorate them with a modern lens and contemporary effects uh, really brought something to the screen that hadn't been seen in generations. Okay, that's that's fair. That is fair. I I am sold on that argument. Okay, great. I have concerns on this one, but I am sold. That's, you, you that's have, fine. You have persuaded me. Yeah. Is this movie technically outstanding? Yes. Uh, it has some of the best sword fighting, uh, some of the best action sequences that I've seen in a long time. It is beautifully shot. Uh, it is beautifully costumed. There are some pretty outstanding visual effects that I think still look very good with the ghost pirates. We watched this recently for an episode that we did on it. And I was still, you know, pretty excited, even though I think it came out in 2004, I think it still looks very good. The acting is great. I mean, Johnny Depp was Oscar nominated for this role as the Keith Richards, Pepe Le Pew love child. Uh, And it also has the great performances by Jeffrey Rush and by Jonathan Price and by Kira Knightley and a sort of, Milk toast performance by Orlando Bloom, but he doesn't take anything away from the movie. So I think it's technically pretty outstanding. A very tight script, um, very interesting, funny dialogue. Uh, what are your perspectives on this? It has, without a doubt, one of the best sword fights I have ever seen in film. It is up there with Indigo Montoya and the Man in yeah, Black. Yeah, exactly. It is up there with Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Anakin Skywalker. Yep. Like it's one of those, those fight oh scenes. God, and the score too. The score is really fantastic. Yeah. I, I mean that when Jack Sparrow meets Orlando Bloom's character, Will Turner blanked on his name there. And they have that sore fight in the blacksmith's shop that alone would let me probably pass technically yeah, outstanding. It's a perfect scene. That's how good that sword fight is. Um, so I, I am in agreement. I think it's technically outstanding. Does the CGI hold up? Not great, but here's the thing at the time it was amazing and they don't just rely on CG to tell the story, CGI yeah. to, to, yeah. to tell the story. Lots shot on location, a lot of it is not visually effects driven. So because they used it pretty liberally and how they used it, when you see the you know zombie ghost pirates, though you don't think, oh, wow, that looks amazing. You certainly don't look at that and say, well, that's terrible. You know, I'm, I can think of movies like when I go back and watch the original Ghostbusters and I look at those effects, I'm like, those really didn't age too well. Yeah. I don't feel that way. Even though I can tell they're not as good as now, I still think they're good for the time. So I'm willing to pass it. Awesome. All right. We are down to our last. So Pirates of the Caribbean is one through five. Dark horse here. Check mark. Five of the metrics. Okay. Last one. Resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny. I'm going to let you take this one to start. What do you think about resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny in this movie? It's probably its weakest category yeah. that we've discussed here. While there are some interesting thematic elements about the role of class and how it pertains to colonialism, they don't dive too deep into that. Though it does have some interesting themes about where you should live in and without the law and that there can be good and justice outside the boundaries of law and order. And sometimes the boundaries of law and order can be constrictive 
and can hurt you finding justice, it doesn't dive too deep into that either. At the end, you have a movie that's largely about Will, Jack, and Barbosa outdoing each other for this the return of this gold, to undo this curse or not undo this curse. Could that really talk about the role of colonialism and how that colonialism is a cursed endeavor in which those who are profiting off of the Aztec gold are being damned for their sins? It could, but it doesn't really go there either. There's a lot of, there's a lot of avenues of scrutinized themes, of themes that could hold up, that once you start peeling it back, they become rather hollow. You have to reach in order to say that the themes hold up under scrutiny in this. I think what you are left with is a really fun, really great movie that goes one layer under the surface, but gets hollow really quickly. And because of that, I would fail it. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth. Other things that it plays with the idea of, but doesn't actually go deeply into is gender roles. You know, women on ships, whether women can choose who they marry based on their own ambitions, whether they can fight alongside men or whether they are just considered bad luck or even just objects in a man's life. Uh, It does not really engage with those critically. This movie certainly has resonant themes. We did an entire episode on it and we found some really exciting and rich things to talk about, but do they hold up under scrutiny? Not really. We're kind of just playing in the shallow end here. Could it really talk about the age of pirate? I mean, I read a book about pirates for that, if I remember correctly, and it could really talk about the age of piracy and what that meant and, and say something pseudo-historical or pseudo-philosophical about it, but it doesn't. And I think this is the area where I am not willing to pass it. I think that is correct. And we are now three deep and have not passed a single movie through. Jeez, we are brutal. Yeah. And these have been great movies. Yeah. All three of these movies, great in their own way, Amazing, but not perfect. Well, we've got two more and two two more more. chances to pass something through. Okay, so what's the next one? Pulp Fiction. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. All right, so whole and unified, a contained and complete narrative. Yes. 100%. Yeah, totally original. Easily. Accessible. I think everyone, everyone saw Pulp Fiction when it came out. Everybody has seen this movie at some point. I think this movie is absurdly accessible for how fringe and art housey it also is. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It is absolutely a a more experimental movie. It plays with nonlinear storytelling and it is not your traditional blockbuster. It absolutely is a, a work of sort of independent auteur cinema, but it is still accessible. It walks that line really nimbly. All right. So we're going to pass it. I pass it. It's timeless. It's over 10 years old. It still holds up. Yep. Easily. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. Would you like to take this? Wow. Okay. Um, I, I would venture to say this is probably pretty zeitgeist forming. It is definitely one that most people consider 
Tarantino's best or one of his best, along with a couple of others that tend to make those top lists. Uh, and it absolutely skyrocketed his fame. And I, I have definitely seen plenty of parodies of the Royale with cheese scene or the uh, Uma Thurman and John Travolta uh, dancing scene. I've absolutely seen people riff on this movie because they expect a certain kind of cultural knowledge of this film. It has become a cultural touchstone in its own way. And there are symbolic elements of it that I think have become cultural uh, stand-ins as well, like the briefcase. I think there are things that you can refer to in Pulp Fiction that stand in for something else that almost takes on mythic quality. I'm even thinking of that episode of Community that just goes full into trying to recreate Pulp Fiction because it expects a certain knowledge of that as a cultural touchstone. So I would, yeah, definitely call it zeitgeist forming. I do agree. How many people can say the character Jules, played by Samuel L. Jackson, how many people can recite that entire Bible verse? Yeah. Which is, by the way, not a real Bible verse. It is heavily made up and changed from the Bible verse. Amazing. It's not an actual real quote from the Bible. But how many people can sit there and just recite some, if not all of it, from memory just because that scene is so iconic? You have, we mentioned that one of the reasons we passed Pirates of the Caribbean was because it catapulted Johnny Depp's career into the mainstream. Well, John Travolta's career was all but over, re-catapulted him into the mainstream, and Samuel L. Jackson's star was certainly on the rise, but this is the movie that then made him a household name. It made these two actors, two of the most well-paid and famous actors in the world at the time, and still to today, two of the most famous, well-known, well-paid actors, simply because they were in this movie. I think every scene and moment in this movie is iconic and has some sort of fan base around it, for better or for worse. I think this is the definition of why we have this category in this. A movie has to be zeitgeist-forming in a Pulp Fiction way, to pass this. This is this is the definition of what it means for a movie to form a zeitgeist. I love it. Excellent. Pass. This one, this next one here, is going to be, I think, fairly easy. I assume, I don't know, technically outstanding. Technically outstanding. Yeah, I mean, it has one of the most star-studded casts in recent history, uh, and everyone turns in a pretty incredible performance. It's Tarantino, so he is writing just marvelous, sparkling dialogue, and a really, like, we always include screenwriting as part of Technically Outstanding because I think having an incredible script is one of the basic building blocks of having a perfect movie, and this is a pretty airtight script. Yeah. Um, Tarantino made it. It's Technically Outstanding. Yeah. Done. Sold. Last one. Resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny. What do you think? There are some really interesting themes. One, the gangster narrative as an, a narrative of American culture, I have always found interesting. The idea that Americans are always somewhat looking to step outside of the law in order to get their riches and their fame, and what does that mean? There's certainly a theme of what does it mean to grow old in a cruel world that's explored very deeply through Bruce Willis's character, 
and Samuel L. Jackson's character as they are aging. What do they do? Do they become more selfish, less selfish? Do they just finally look for their one last big score or do they decide to become the shepherd? As Samuel L. Jackson says, this is a story where a character does find God in a most bizarre and weird way. And based upon that experience, decides not to kill someone for the first time in their adult life. That is an interesting theme worth exploring. It plays with the MacGuffin trope very well, in which we can really understand what that means in a movie, in the briefcase. Why are there MacGuffins? That is something that we could do an entire Midnight Myth. You could do a whole podcast on MacGuffins and great MacGuffins and trying to understand their symbolism and what they mean. If you don't know what a MacGuffin is, it's a term Edgar, not Edgar Allan Poe, God. Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock, sorry. Alfred Hitchcock coined about a thing in a movie that the character's trying to get, and it doesn't really matter if they get it or not, like the briefcase. It just moves the plot along. It's just something to push the characters to the next phase. And then... Lastly, it explores the consequences of substance abuse in the storyline with Uma Thurman, who overdoses. And that, and that, to me, is related to the theme of characters playing outside the law. So if your life and fortune and husband are gangsters, why not just get recklessly high? And here's a character who snorts a line of killer heroin after a night of doing lots of cocaine and almost dies. And that to me also resonates with the theme of growing old and the theme of what do we do as we get older? Do we become kinder or crueler? Do we become, do we get medieval on their asses for lack of a better term? Or do we find someone nice and move to Bora Bora? All of these things are in this movie with the accessibility that it has and does so playfully, genuinely to each and individual character that I think it has resonant themes which hold up under scrutiny. I think so too. And I feel like I'm about to get a shot of adrenaline straight to the heart because was that the last one? That is six. That's the last one. That's a perfect movie. Pulp Fiction, ladies and gentlemen. Is a perfect movie, Midnight Myth certified, scientific Trophies in the mail, Quentin Tarantino. Wow. Okay. We have one that passed. All right. Uh, Amazing. So we have one more? One more. And I'm pulling an old switcheroo boomerang on Derek because we had signed up to do a certain movie. And then I decided halfway through this that we really needed one that could easily pass through. So I've changed it. But hopefully it actually will pass through uh, like I expect it to. But let's see. This movie is The Lion King. The Lion King. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Let's go to Pride Rock, everybody. Yeah. And let's talk about The Lion King. Do we need to? It passes. It's a perfect movie. No, no. We'll we'll put it through the screws. Let's put it to the test. All right. So, hold it unified. A contained and complete narrative. 100%. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. This movie didn't exist. It was completely the brainchild of Disney and the artists and collaborators and creatives at Disney. If there were no other Lion King things made afterwards, it would still stand. Yes. Accessible. Easily. 
It's for everyone. I watched it when it came out in theaters when I was four years old and I cried and I will watch it again right now and I will cry again. Everything from the music to the the way that it is animated, all of it just grabs your attention. I mean, the accessibility in the circle of life opener in getting you invested in this movie is probably one of the most accessible entries I've ever seen in a movie. And then boom, now you're there now. Yep. All the animals can talk and I'm totally cool with it. Pass. Timeless. Yeah. Came out in 94 and remains probably Disney's best traditionally animated film, at least in my perspective, you could argue otherwise, but you would be wrong. Uh, and it continues to spawn adaptations. It is still running on Broadway after 20 years, uh, and it had a live-action remake recently that could not come close to touching the technical achievements of the first one, but that does go to show that people are still interested in engaging with this story. I believe it's also getting a live-action sequel, unfortunately, but that's a story for another day. I would agree. Timeless. Zeitgeist forming, not zeitgeist responding. Can I take this? Yeah, please. Obviously, we're going to pass it, but I want to tell you why we're going to pass it. Yeah. When Lion King was made, it was thought of that people no longer wanted to see talking animals in animation, and it got the quote-unquote Disney B-team to work on it. The A-team, if memory serves correct, was working on Pocahontas. That's correct. And so it got less resources. It got the quote-unquote less talented animators. It got the B-team to go ahead and put this. They figured it wasn't going to flop. And it became the most successful movie of that era of Disney and one of the most successful Disney movies of all time. Everybody knows Circle of Life. Everybody knows I Just Want to Be King. Everyone, you could walk down the street Anywhere in America and probably in most places of the world and go, Mufasa. And someone would go, <laughs> it is that zeitgeist forming. Like you said, it has spawned a huge, huge amount of media in response and adjacent and in conversation to it. It has absolutely formed its own zeitgeist. Yep. Pass. Technically outstanding. Need we say anything here? You can just watch the opening three minutes, the opening number, the circle of life, and see that it is some of the most beautiful hand-drawn animation to ever grace a screen. Uh, it is, uh, it's loaded with emotion. It has some of the greatest music in Disney's canon, and the score by Hans Zimmer is so evocative and so original. The music just spurs it to all new heights. Beautifully animated, like I said, beautifully acted. The iconic powerhouse performance of James Earl Jones as Mufasa will stick with me for the rest of my life. And nothing on screen, I think, has given me the same emotions as watching Mufasa's death for the first time. So uh, I would say this is technically outstanding. No argument. Oh, Jeremy Irons a scar. Come on. No argument whatsoever. Resonant themes that hold up under scrutiny. Themes like discovering your own philosophy, becoming a nihilist because you have been ostracized from your home, but then rediscovering your pride and your power and rediscovering your uh, ability to rule 
becoming a king when you thought you were no one, annihilating yourself and then rediscovering your role within a great circle of life. Uh, the themes that are built upon some of those that Shakespeare built into his great play Hamlet are, I think, made even more complex when introduced to the animal kingdom. We have characters who all exhibit their own sense of philosophy and who influence Simba on his hero's journey, but he has to find his way back on his own and form his own philosophy. Hakuna Matata on its own is a resonant theme that holds up under scrutiny. Wouldn't you agree? Even if you ultimately come to disagree with it, you don't have to agree. I don't live my philosophy in the Derek Jones philosophy of life is not Hakuna Matata, but I'm glad I know what it is and I can dialogue with it. I'll give one little thing of pushback here. Yeah, go for it. There can be an argument to be made of two things that don't hold up well under scrutiny. Thing number one is a rigid caste system that relegates certain subsections as outsiders and then forces them to live in poverty without resources could be looked at as a metaphor in particular, the way the hyenas are treated by the lions could be looked at in part as a metaphor for certain hierarchies in the modern era that we live in and saying that's the natural order. For example, racial discrimination and structural racism in America saying, hey, you know, you got to have certain people have to be put down in order for this circle of life to work, could be looked at as a tacit, you know, check mark of approval that having a oppressor and oppressed dynamic is necessary in order for there to be a society. You could argue that's in this movie. So that would be point number one. Oh God, what was my other point? Well, I'll respond to that while you think of it. I think that that point is valid to bring up, but I, I do think that's reading a little bit further into the intent of the artist than is necessary. And I do think that while you could map those onto contemporary society, uh, the intent of the circle of life is to emphasize that regardless of where you you stand on a vertical hierarchy, that vertical hierarchy does not actually exist because everyone plays the same uh, essential role in a circle. So it says that even though there is a king at the top ostensibly, that he is no more important than the hornbill, that he is no more important than the grubs and the log. He's no more important than the meerkat and the warthog. Yeah, easy to say when you're on the top. True, yeah. It's good to be the king. Valid. The other thing I was going to say is, in that same vein, is there a political conservative argument being made that, hey, just preserve this balance. No need to reform or make it better. Your job is to just preserve what's already here that could be looked at as potentially American conservative propaganda embedded in the film. Well... I mean, sure, but I don't think that's what's really going on. I think you can make that argument, but I think that is, that's a reach for me because we are still talking about the animal kingdom. This is true, but do those themes, does the possibility of those interpretations, I agree with you. I don't think those are good interpretations of the movie. 
The hyena one, I think, is a little... I have a little more credence to that argument than I do to it being potentially conservative propaganda in a cartoon movie. I don't think it is. But the fact that those could be read there, is it enough to say that these ideas don't hold up under scrutiny? No. I mean, also consider that the hyenas are likened to Nazis in the iconography of the film and that Scar is a lion. So he is absolutely at the top of the food chain, but he is a corrupting influence on those outcasts. And so there is a, uh, there is a world where those outcasts are, you know, there's still a role that is marginalized because they're scavengers. And so they don't necessarily slot perfectly into the circle of life, but they do still play an essential role in it. And instead of being embraced by Mufasa, they are corrupted by Scar. I think there is a world that we can imagine where Simba is more generous to all because Simba is going to be better than Mufasa in many ways because he has experienced being among uh, meerkats and warthogs who live outside of their designated space. So, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. If anything, it's arguing against right-wing populist demagoguery. Exactly. As this as a tool for someone to seize complete dictator control yeah. over society. Yeah. Then it is saying, hey, we should all be a little more conservative. It really, I think you're absolutely right. I had to bring those up. Yeah, and it I, says that leaders should respect everyone uh, who is a part of their society and should acknowledge and recognize the role that they play and give them that credit. I'm willing to agree with you Boom. Lion King. Perfect movie. So out of the six, we have Lion King and Pulp Fiction, certified Midnight Myth, Gauntlet, perfect movies. Perfect movies. Close was Apocalypse Now. Close was a Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, what was the uh, the other two? Pirates of the Caribbean. Close, but didn't make it. Did we do another one? No, that's all of them. No, we did five. Yeah, that's all of them. Okay. We did five. Two passed. Three came close. Anything else you got? No. I had a blast. Please let us know what you think if our arguments are good, bad, or somewhere in between. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.